The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Kia ora everyone and welcome to The Good Citizen. I'm your host Jeremy Hansen and every month I talk to an interesting Aucklander with great ideas about how to make this city even better. This podcast is brought to you by Britomart, nine blocks of smart thinking in downtown waterfront Auckland. And my guest this month is urban designer Ben Van Bruggen, who not that long ago moved from London to Tāmaki to take up a role as Auckland's city designer. Ben, welcome. Kia ora. You already had a perfectly good job in London, and yet you moved all the way to the other side of the world with your wife and children. What made you want to move here? Uh, yeah, in London, my work was um, involved in offering design advice to clients, private sector clients mainly, dealing in tall buildings, sports stadia, and um, and I did quite a lot of design review. And one of the things that um, I did in uh, 2016 was I held a national conference of design review and I contacted the Auckland Design Office because I knew they had a design review process which was very much based on the Commission for Architecture of the Built Environment where I'd worked previously. And I was just captivated by what Ludo and his colleagues were saying about Auckland and where it was going. And it seemed like a fantastic opportunity to come and work in a city where there was a great team. There appeared to be great leadership in um, in the mayor and backing a design-led city approach, um, and also sort of a discourse around what what urban design meant in a in a place like this. And so, as an urbanist, you don't get that many opportunities to to kind of have a city-wide perspective on what you're doing. And Auckland seemed the place that I could um, I could do that. Um, I often think kind of Auckland is uh, small enough to understand, but it's big enough to matter. So, what is your job? You mentioned Ludo Campbell Reid before, who you work with at the Auckland Design Office at Auckland Council. On a day-to-day basis, what are you doing in the city to change the city? So, Ludo recruited me for the urban design strategy team, um, which is therefore looking at governance, leadership, and some of the more strategic projects. That are going on. Uh, it's a it's a small team um, within a in a bigger unit. I think we're up to about 60, 60 people now in the whole unit. Um, and yeah, it's really taking on what the Auckland plan is saying um, for the twenty fifty Auckland plan and the development of the city going forward um, in the next ten years or so. Coming here with fresh eyes, how would you assess the state of Auckland at the moment? Um, 
I think it's a really interesting time, and it's kind of the reason I'm here. Um, Auckland is growing in its population by about 2.6% uh, every year, which even for any developed city, any developed nation, that's that's a lot to be contending with. Um, and we'll soon exceed 2 million, um, and who knows where it'll go from there. And that presents challenges to, to any city, um, and we need to kind of catch up. We need to get to the pace of that change. And uh, and start to delivering on some of the um, uh, the urban promises that they're that they're, that we're making. This is a city that's um, for a large part been made up of villages, and for a long time was kind of slagged off justifiably to a point as a city without a heart, um, as a city that was built around the needs of motorists rather than pedestrians and people that lived there, and also a place that had a kind of ugly urban environment that didn't do any justice whatsoever to the beautiful landscape in which it's situated. Are all those criticisms fair, and how much progress has the city made towards changing those problems? Uh, yes, I think that is fair, and it's, it, actually it, it's probably um, quite light in some in some instances. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the, uh, in the 1950s, Auckland had a public transport um, system, the trams, where the ridership was one of the highest in the world. Today, we uh, we have more cars per per capita here than anywhere else in the world, and so that change over kind of half a decade, um, half a century or so, um, has really made a fundamental change to to what's happening. Um, every week, someone dies on our roads. Every day, somebody is seriously injured, and we have to deal with those consequences of that car dependency and car domination that has come in. Um, the I think there's also um, a, a realization or a kind of maturing of the city as well. So I'm quite interested in some of the heritage elements that are coming. And um, in some instances, we've sort of torn it, torn down a building and just left its facade, just left the kind of the skin of its face, and built something behind it. And I think we should we should probably be having a more mature approach to actually our heritage, whether it be what reflected in a Maori city or actually our European. Um, um, heritage particularly reflected in the buildings and perhaps taking care of that heritage a bit more as it will provide the value for our character and our urban environment for the future. You mentioned Māori design values and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about dealing with those and incorporating those in the changes that are happening in the city because I presume that layer, an indigenous layer on urban design was not something that really existed in London when you were working there. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, although in London, of course, you can go back to Roman times, and you can still find those remnants of the city, whether it be through alleyways or routes, or actually in, in terms of um, the archaeology. Um, I actually really didn't have much of an idea and perception about what was the influence of the Maori and South Pacific in Auckland. Looking at the images from afar, it looked like a fairly ordinary, you know, Australian or North American city. But actually, it's um, I have the privilege of working with some of the Maori designers in our in our team, and it's actually the most interesting things is around the way they we're looking at approaching projects, about the way we think about projects and the character, the identity of the city, um, and not just about applying um, some form of um, art or sculpture or interpretation, but actually what is the essence of what we're trying to create? How do we reflect? Uh, the Māori faces in our city. How perceptible do you think um, the incorporation of those design values will be to, say, a visitor like yourself who came here from London for the first time? Would you sense that indigeneity about the urban design projects 
that you're working on as they get rolled out? For the future, absolutely. Yes, um, it, it is. Um, it is. Yeah, it's a. It's a. It is a way of thinking in many ways. Um, <clears throat> it's not about uh, consultation necessarily, um, although obviously that happens. But it's actually more of an involvement and an engagement. And so it's developing those stories which we'll all be able to share going forward. And we often talk about it being the the point of difference. Um, what makes Auckland that visible thing in the world stage that that is different from everywhere else, and that is one. Um, one aspect of it. I mentioned before the city centre and my rather long-winded question. Um, how important is it that a city has a dynamic city centre? Um, I, I think it's vital. The cities exist because of transactions. It's people doing business, but it's also people meeting. It's people exchanging ideas, um, exchanging stories, um, trade, um, exchanging exchanging finance, and a compact. Um, city centre allows all of those things to happen at scale. So you can have all those meetings, you can do all those things. So a really strong city centre really matters. You know, the city centre was hollowed out. And in the 1980s, nobody was really living in the city centre. Today, it's one of the fastest growing residential communities in New Zealand. There's coming up for 50,000, I think, um, residents within within the city centre, and that will soon be up to 70,000. And there's new life there now. There's new restaurants, there's new shops, there's, um, you know, the fabulous art gallery. It really is a place to come, be seen, to spend time. Auckland was developed, of course, um, along a colonial model, which had the good fortune in some areas of allocating significant parkland as public space, such as the Auckland Domain, Albert Park, there are other examples all over the city. In recent times, it seems that development has not been anywhere near as good at allocating space that gets incorporated into the public domain like that, recreational space. Does Auckland have a policy now that ensures that as the city expands or densifies, that high quality public amenity will still be available? Um, yeah, we need, to, um, we need to work out um, how that's, that's all going to be provided. Um, sometimes it feels like it's quite crowded, but actually it's an incredibly low-density city um, on average. Um, and the the ability to get to, you know, I think 95% of us live within five kilometres of the beach. You know, the, the beach in part has become that recreational space. Instead of having a sports pitch in the middle of um, the housing, it's it's going to the beach. Um, but we, we do need to um, recognise that with that intensity and density, there may be less private space. And so the public spaces become more important for movement, meeting, um, and, uh, and, and yeah, socialising as well as exercise and sports and those kind of things. I guess part of what I'm getting at with the previous two questions about the city centre and also about the public spaces that are allocated around the city is how do you ensure that um, the budgets and the energy of urban design projects are distributed equitably throughout the city? Because there have been examples around the world of urban design projects being allocated to places that create photogenic backdrops for tourists and locals to use on occasion, but that many suburbs that are in the greatest need of the benefits of urban design do not get to experience those. How is Auckland Council working to ensure that urban design attention gets paid equally around the city rather than just to the glamour spots? Yeah, it's, um, it's tricky because there's often... 
a bigger budget for projects within the city centre. Um, and we have a targeted rate within the city centre that's able to deliver some of those things, which, which doesn't exist in other places. But most of us don't live in the city centre. Most of us don't actually work in the city centre. We're in the suburbs. We're travelling between the suburbs. And so creating the ability to um, walk, undertake most of your daily routines within a, um, one of the suburban centres, um, being able to um, you know, connect those those cities through public transport, cycleways, and and better quality public realm will be where we'll develop the future of the city. In terms of um, policies and drive within the Auckland plan, uh, the intensification of our of our suburban centres is is promoted. Um, we are able to build at higher densities, which in turn can lead to the better quality public realm um, that we're that we're seeking. Speaking of equity, Auckland, as you know, is also in the grips of a massive housing crisis. What did you learn from dealing with a similar situation in London that you think can be applied here? What's the best way out of the situation? And I acknowledge that it's going to take some time. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what we can learn from London, really, or whether that's the most appropriate example to look at. Um, one of the striking similarities is the cost of housing versus salaries. Um, that exist in London and in Auckland. You know, they're separated by 12,000 miles. They have different planning regimes. There are different people. There's different identity. But that global finance approach to housing as a commodity exists. So we have this housing crisis. Perhaps if you'd bought a house 10 or 15 years ago in Auckland and you've seen that value rise considerably, you may have been able to borrow more money against the value of that house. That doesn't feel like a crisis. That feels like the lottery. You can buy a boat. You could buy a buy a new car. Um, so the housing crisis is not equally spread. And we talk about, the, we talk about it as being a crisis, but, but it's really one of the kind of affordability. Um, the, the Auckland plan and, and um, the sort of uh, the city's planning regime has enabled a million homes to be built in our residential zones that exist at the moment. There's also another million that could be built within those centres, those, those employment centres. So it's not through a lack of, cons- of um, land availability. It's the consenting, it's the cost, and, and it's also the, the financing of it. We've, we've given over much of our housing development to the private sector. And they understandably, and it's what they're good at, in making profit. But it also means that they focus on a very narrow bit of the market and will only deliver houses to that market. The same model exists in London. Um, and it seems that you know house prices are running away. If we perhaps take more of a, a lead from Germany or Holland where um, the public sector uh, has a much higher role in, in enabling people to build for themselves and it enables a rental uh, market in high quality renting that secure tenancy um, which allows flexibility of people to move around. It has co-housing is a is a big part of the product that is produced and generally the government, the public sector, owns the land and it doesn't sell it off. It redevelops it, it repurposes, it's a steward of the land. It takes a long-term estate management role in the city. Um, what we tend to do here is sell land on and then use that capital receipt for, for something, um, which may work in some instances. But if we want to provide secure tenancy and housing, we probably have to build more public housing for people who are never going to be able to get mortgages and we probably need to own that in the long term and give them a secure tenancy. Do you feel confident that that is happening in Auckland? And I acknowledge that this is not, you know, the council that you work for's entire responsibility, but it's happening at a national level as well. Yeah, I, I, I 
think it is. I think we still have this inherited um, system um, that the default is to sell sell land off and not develop it. We don't necessarily have those skills within the public sector to be able to deliver that. I think there is some new thinking going on. Um, there are now some examples of co-housing coming forward. There are some examples of car-free developments, which even just a few years ago would not really have been talked about. So I think these things are changing, I think, but we still have a lot, a lot to learn and a lot to kind of experiment with, I suppose. What does good urban design look like to you? To me? Hmm. Ah, well, um, the, that's an interesting question. Um, it's, it's really around um, the, uh, it, it is fit for purpose. Um, it is well built in that um, it's robust. Uh, but it also lifts the spirits in some way. So it's quite often hard to explain why you think something is good, but it's really quite easy to understand why you think it's bad. And so good urban design is is not really a, a, a one single point in time. Good urban design means different things from different contexts. Um, you kind of know it when you see it sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, generally it's about what is what is the experience for the person who is using that, who the homeowner, someone who's the visitor, um, and how easy is it for them to navigate around a particular development, for example, or a city? How pleasant do they feel the streets are? Are they tree-lined, for example? Um, does it feel harsh against roadways? Um, how much care has been taken to the experience at the ground floor level? What are you walking next to? There's a number of things which make up good urban design, and it relates to its different context. Um, it is also architecture. And it's also landscape. And those things, when they combine with the people-centric experience, that's what can make good urban design. And it doesn't have to be new. It doesn't have to be polished. It doesn't have to be shiny. It doesn't have to be granite sets on the ground in the, in the public realm. It can actually be that ex experience um, of a confined or a, an enclosed space, an alleyway with a view at the end. It's interesting hearing you talk about um, feelings and those kind of perceptions. So how does... Oh, no, there's a better way to phrase that question, actually. It sounds like you're suggesting that um, people know when they are in a space that's well-designed because they can intuitively feel that. Is that what you're working towards? Yeah, we, um, as um, human beings, we respond a lot to those senses. It's not just sight, but it's smell in particular and, and sound. Um, and we will often gather in places where there are lots of other people gathering as well. Um, particularly in cities, and so those in themselves become successful places, places to sit and watch, observe what's going on, um, to feel safe. Um, yeah, all of those things will will help make up. And I think we're really only just understanding what those reactions are to to the how the brain reacts to reacts to spaces. Um, you know, the the thought around um, uh, texture in the built form. So as you're walking down the street as a as a um, as a hunter-gatherer, you wouldn't be walking down the street, but you would be, um, instead of thinking about um, uh, alleyways where someone might jump out at you, you'd actually be looking for spaces where you could find food, you could find insects, animals that may have been hiding. And so we respond actually in a positive way to a lot of texture. So where buildings are going in and out and the streets have a lot of definition around them rather than perhaps a, a, a glass sheer wall down the side of the back of the pavement with nothing going on we respond better where we can have that texture. And it might be something to do with that that um, ancestral um, desire to find and, and gather food. Now, I don't think I have any evidence for that, but 
you know, it's um, it, it's believable. You're appealing to our lizard brains. Yes. <laughs> yes. The it's interesting you mentioned this desire for communality, if that's the right word. People want to be in spaces where they can watch other people interact and to be around others. Yet in Auckland, we've had this incredible opposition to the proposals of increasing the density in many residential density in many parts of the city. And listening to some of the voices that were opposing increased density, you would think that they never wanted to see another human being in their lives. How do we change the minds of those people when it's so obvious that the city needs to change to fit in the people that are moving here and also that they benefit from being around people more, you're saying. So how do we sell them on the benefits of that and not make them fear that it's just about their back lawn getting shaded or something? Yeah, was it um, Auden that said we'd rather be ruined than change? <laughs> and um, I think that, you know, there's definitely there is some of that. But increasingly they are the vocal minority and we will not change the minds of many people. And I don't have the time or the effort to be able to change the minds of people who really are not going to change. They're, they're set in what they're doing. They're not going to see that. But there are a group of people who are um, willing to support what's going on or actually want change, but they're not as vocal. They're not as demanding because they may not have seen or been told the stories of what that future might look like. And it's those people that we try to concentrate on. They're the ones that will bring everyone with them and they'll bring the support and they'll tell their friends and neighbours about what a great experience or a, 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 a great thing that's going on. Um, and so we should appeal to them. And one of the ways that we can do that is, is just through experimentation and through a step-by-step -step process. So uh, closing off a street, getting rid of the car parking, paving it over, pedestrianising it in one hit seems like that's a too big a change for everybody to accept. So the people losing car parking spaces will object. People who may have been cycling through there might object. People of shopkeepers might object. You know, visitors might object. Disabled people might object, you know, for all good reasons. But if we decide to close part of that street for one day of the month and we host an event there and we see what can happen, and then we maybe extend that to, to a longer strip or we do something that's slightly more permanent, we may take out a couple of parking spaces in order to put in a wider pavement so a cafe can spill out onto the street. We can start to take people on, a, on the journey with us of the story so we don't have to leap straight to the end. We can give them positive affirmment of what they were doing and, and they can witness the changes for themselves. Rather than his consultation, we're looking at a plan, we've drawn this all up. You're looking at it as though you're a seagull flying above this site rather than actually experiencing it. Um, and I think we're learning. And I think one of the great things about Auckland and one of the things that excites me is that innovation, experimentation um, are not only accepted, they're encouraged. Um, you know, we often uh, get councillors saying you should do more of that and you should do it quicker. And that's really, um, <clears throat> really reassuring. And it's, and it's a really positive thing rather than, you know, my neighbour says no, so I'm going to vote against this. We can actually demonstrate how we can change the city one street at a time, one block at a time, one area at a time. And if you're demonstrating that, do you think that you're talking about kind of changing the minds of a populace? What about changing the kind of um, hardwired approaches to, say, rolling out new roading projects or whatever, where we've seen this time and time again in Auckland, where it suddenly it seems like a space isn't designed, but the engineers have run everything and the engineers are most obsessed with getting cars through a space as efficiently as possible. How do you win that battle in a position such as yours where those things are being carried out by an entirely separate organisation to your own? 
Oh, gosh, if I had that, I would be consulting all around the world. It seems to be uh, a way of dealing with it. Um, actually, I, I don't believe that people get up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to go and ruin this place and do a really rubbish scheme. Um, it, it, it happens through lots of different um, different aspects, and it may be professional um, uh, professional institutes or, or professions, um, but generally it, it, it ends up being because decisions are siloed. So one of the great things about urban design is it's not only a kind of an outcome, a built thing, it's actually more often it's a process. It's a process of collaboration. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of allowing people to put their ideas in and for us to then express what they might be like in the three-dimensional world um, of, of the reality of it. Um, and I think we, you know, it is, there's a lot of responsibility in those um, highway proposals. Um, and a lot of them are often very, very expensive. And so there's a lot of risk with them. So do you want to be the one that says, look, I know we did that last time, but I don't think we should do it this time. I think we should do it in a completely different way, but I don't know what it's going to cost us. And I don't know how long it's going to take, but we should try and find out. You know, that's quite a brave thing to do for any organization that's trying to keep a city running. So we have to find space for people to able to do that and to experiment in ways that that can inform those decisions so that, that we're not constantly thinking, okay, well, the business case here is how do you get from here to here in the quickest time with the least delays? We actually need to change our mindset to say, okay, how do we improve the city by creating um, a, a mobility, a transit, mass transit, light rail, whatever project that might be? What is it going to be for the people, not just the transport? The transport isn't an end in itself. It's a, it's a means to getting to an end. Do you still, oh, do you think the battle's won in terms of convincing people who are car dependent or who much prefer to use their cars that we cannot solve the problems that Auckland has by building more roads? Um, it, to my mind, it seems, it seems obvious that that, that is the case. Um, but if you have, <clears throat> you know, there's a thing called drive, to drive until you qualify. You can't afford somewhere in the city centre. So you have to seek um, affordable accommodation that is further and further out. The further out you go, the less the public transport is going to support you, the less active modes of cycling and walking will support you. So you then become dependent on the car. And then you build your life around that, driving your kids to school, the shops, all those things. And those land uses become more and more dispersed because there's more need for car parking, for car storage and for car movement. And then that continues. So supermarkets are further apart, so you can't walk between them. You have to get in your car and drive. Um, so we do have to reverse that um, by looking at how do we intensify around our public transport. When we're putting in new public transport, let's not do things that encourage the car to come and visit there. Let's build transport-orientated development, which means residential offices, leisure, schools, which people can access who live there, but also locally will access the transport system. And the transport system reinforces the land use. The land use reinforces the transport system instead of laying out the land use and then trying to fit the transport around it. Because um, this is an equity issue too, is it not? Yes, mm. yes. Yeah, so, you know, the the cost to our mental health, um, you know, the, the cost of road accidents, um, the cost of congestion, the cost of pollution, um, all of these things are not necessarily, they're not necessarily built in or they're not necessarily valued because they're quite hard and they may be, um, an individual may, may apportion different values to that, there are those trade-offs, um, but ultimately, yeah, we're you know we are increasing our journey times, we're increasing the congestion, and it's decreasing our productivity. 
So we need to think of other ways of doing that and changing that. And the way we used to do things is not going to be the way that we will do things. Why do you think cycle waves um, inspire such anger in so many people? Yeah, I really don't know. I really don't know. Um, I, it's, um, it seems like a... Um, uh, um, it, it, it seems like it's there for few people at the moment. Um, but it is a case of you, you don't build a bridge by the number of people swimming across the river. The cycleways, when they become a network, they become uh, far more useful. And, you know, the idea that, um, uh, that they'll allow us freedom. Um, I won't have to drive my kids around. If there are protected cycleways, I'm going to feel more inclined to allow them to cycle. So I don't have to take them to tennis or to school or whatever. Um, you know, they actually, they walk to all of those things now. But, um, you know, families having that, freeing up that time so you're not the taxi service for your children, an integrated network of cycleways could achieve that. Why are people opposed to it? Um, I think they see it as being that, that sort of change. And um, we've perhaps in the past not done well with how we've communicated that change. And people have not been able to see that the benefit of having a cycle network where things are connected across the city um, does allow that, that level of freedom. They see it as a, the piece that's outside their house that, um, that is not connected with those things. And we perhaps haven't been good enough at the design of them. We probably haven't learned the lessons from other countries as to, as to how we would do it. Um, and sometimes these things will take a moment in history. The, uh, uh, the Dutch in the 1970s, there were hundreds of children being killed every year on the roads, like hundreds, and it caused protest. And families then said, we want safe routes to schools. So it started a movement of building cycle routes from homes to schools. Now, there is no opposition to any new cycleway in Holland. And this is within a single generation. That's right. Mm. Yep. Yep. Uh, they also happen to be the, um, the fittest, one of the fittest nations in the world and certainly the happiest. And recently they've become the tallest, but I suspect that's probably more to do with meat and cheese than it is to do with cycling. But, um, but, but yes, those, we now have the ways of measuring these things. And the, the network is, is really extensive in, in the Netherlands. Um, and, um, uh, but it, yes, it started from that movement of getting school kids to school from home. That is now, you know, everybody has at least one bike. You sound very calm and rational, almost optimistic, but I wondered if there are many times each week when you feel like banging your head against a wall. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, uh, but those, those are perhaps universal um, organisational um, um, you know, conversational people outside of just general human nature in many, in many ways. Um, but I think the overall, there's a really um, strong sense of where we as a city and therefore as a council that's delivering on that city is heading. And um, we probably forget that in our day-to-day -day jobs and we get frustrated with things that aren't working. But actually, actually the, the way that um, there are some really, really super smart people who I work with and it's an absolute privilege. And in my team, there are in other teams. They are great thinkers about what's going on, and they can see the strategies for how we will, we will deliver those, those things and embracing things that are happening for the future, whether it be technologies, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles. There's, we're having all of these discussions and all these thoughts about what changes the city. And so it's a really wonderful and dynamic place to be, and it is being reflected in the city. And if you know, we've seen a lot of changes in the last um, 10 years, the next 10 years, that will, that will double again. The amount that's going on, CRL, the um, central rail link opening up, will change journey times for an awful lot of people, not in the city centre, but outside of it. Um, that 
journey that was an hour will now only be 40 minutes. Um, it makes a huge difference that 20 minutes back to your life as to as to how they're going without having to sit in the car or or, or, or be on a, on a slower train. And with other things coming along, um, with a bit of luck, uh, they will be transformative as well. You mentioned autonomous vehicles before, and I wondered if we could touch briefly on them because there seems to be a group that believes autonomous vehicles will be the solution to everything and an opposing group who say that that will just result in even greater congestion on our roads, which we are already starting to see in some cities in the increasing use of Uber and Lyft and other rideshare apps. Where do you, th do you think autonomous vehicles will solve a lot of our problems or do they have to be combined in a suite of other offerings? I don't think they will solve, no. I'm, um, at the moment, I'm in the, um, in the camp is that it is still a car and it still takes up space in the city um, and the the autonomy has some benefits so when we're talking about road deaths the idea that cars would never crash or would never hit a pedestrian is a very compelling argument one of the um, issues that brings with that though is that um, if the autonomous vehicles, we, we don't necessarily own them, we will want to call them up when we need them, which means that we need cars when we need them. So if it is raining, we will need a lot more cars in the city centre to take people from their offices to wherever they're going so they don't get wet than if it's a sunny day and somebody decides to walk. Where are those cars going? Do they just constantly circle around our city? And if they do, how do you cross the road? If you are, you know... It, it, Anybody able-bodied would find it difficult, but anybody who has any difficulties or is carrying bags or is delivering things, you know, how do we deal with the, just the sheer number of cars? Um, I, I also have a, a proposition that you know, the, at the moment the, the car uh, has an engine at the front and a fuel source at the back, and they have to be kept separate because if they mix, they could explode. So you have to keep those things safe from the passengers as well. So the cars are the way they are because they have a crash shell to keep us safe and they have an engine at the front and a, and a, um, and a petrol tank at the back. If they're all electric and they're never going to crash, they could be made of paper. So they could be, become really, really cheap. So if they're really, really cheap, why would you not own four? Why buy one? Why not have a bigger one for the weekends, a sporty one? You know, why not have an Audi, a Mercedes, as well as a Toyota, as well as, a, you know, there are other car manufacturers. Um, you know, so there's, there's a different proposition for the future, which is many, many more vehicles and many, many more trips. This is Carmageddon. Quite possibly. Um, so, so why would that not result from where, we, where we're heading with, with autonomous vehicles? The, the, I think the, um, one of the things that, that we've been talking about is, is what, what does a post-car city look like and can we imagine that can we imagine what the postcard city might look like and let's do some thinking around that and then apply that to autonomous vehicles to say does that still work do we still have the city that we want with cars autonomous vehicles deliveries and all those other things or are we able to take the best of what those things will offer and apply them to our city rather than apply our city to that technology which has often been sold around the smart cities idea is yeah we'll provide we'll analyze all your data we'll provide you with all the platforms you can manage the city the traffic oh but by the way you have to buy our systems and you have to adapt your city to fit our systems i don't see that as being the future um i think the space that we have with the city today is what we need to repurpose the um the pink path is a great example of repurposing redundant infrastructure the roads tend to stay the same they're quite expensive to put in buildings and private development then comes along on either side of it and that then doesn't change so queen street has been on the same alignment it's always been on 
it didn't have cars down it when it was built. It had people walking, it had horses and carts. It had trams at one point. It now has articulated lorries for some days. Um, and it has a lot of cars on it as well as a lot of people walking. But the building line has remained pretty much the same for the 200 years or so. So we need to adapt our infrastructure in that way. And I think technology that applies to the existing infrastructure will win out because we don't change those things very often. The built environment is generally quite fixed. It's quite hard to change it. It takes a long time. The uses within the buildings change very quickly. The storefronts can change very quickly. Access, all those sort of things can change quickly. So if we have a technology that applies that to the existing city to monitor what's going on and, and drive the efficiencies of it, I think that's a better approach than saying we will have to adapt our cities for things like autonomous vehicles. Um, there's a wonderful YouTube clip about this called um, School Run Drop-Off. And it shows an American city with a lot of uh, cars dropping off one kid at a school. And they everybody has to arrive at, by car. And the 100 kids that are dropped off, it takes 10 to 15 minutes to get everybody dropped off. So let's imagine an office building in the city where everybody arrives in an autonomous vehicle. 2,000 people all arriving at 9 a.m. in autonomous vehicles. We don't have enough curb space. You can't get out at your office. You'll have to get out a kilometre or two away. So... You know, what does that mean for our cities and, and changing those cities? Um, I, I have a hunch that the, that the lift will fundamentally change our cities and the way that our cities look far more than the autonomous vehicles will. The lift, you mean the elevator, not the exactly. ride app? The elevator, yes. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> if you, just to, to um, wind up, Ben, I wanted to ask you, if you had um, three wishes or three projects that you could greenlight for Auckland that you think would solve more of its problems than any others, what would those three things be? Um, the, I think the, f the first one would be an inclusive city. Um, I've struggled with a lot of what's happening in terms of um, inclusivity, and I mean this around the physical environment. So um, uh, people who are, who are not able-bodied, um, we, we, we don't do it very well here, I think. Um, we're perhaps not very um, cognizant of, of the needs of people who are either in wheelchair or, or indeed just elderly. Um, you don't get much time to cross the road before the lights change and the countdown begins. You have to wait an awful long time. And if you have joint pain, waiting at the traffic lights with all these cars going past to cross is a difficult thing to do. And I don't think we really pay much enough attention to that. So my, my wish would be um, Auckland to be uh, the most inclusive city in the world. And that's regardless of, of hills, volcanic cones and all those things. We could still achieve all of those, um, all of those kind of things. So that would, that would probably be the first one. Um, the, the second one is that um, I would like a, um, a space where we could have more of a, a discourse, a discussion, and a debate about the future of the city. So I have an idea for a city room, um, and I'm hoping this wish will come true. So I'm working with a few people to see if this will come true. Um, but it would, be, um, it would be a place that's open to everybody, um, tourists, public, uh, visitors, architects. It'd be a place where we could discuss these things about the future of the city. We can have exhibitions, we could have virtual reality, we'll have physical models so people can get to understand the dynamics of those cities. And we can all collectively then um, have a space where we can talk about what's going on in, in, in our city. Um, and then the final one I think could be achieved really quite easily and, and that's to allow dogs on public transport. Um, you, can go, you can go on a ferry and you can go to Waiheke and Fullers will allow dogs on, on ferries and on buses. But when we get to um, the buses in the city, um, <clears throat> we're, we're not allowed to take dogs on them. And it's just a civilised, grown-up, mature thing to do. We should just be accepting that dogs provide a lot of happiness 
And um, and if so long as you can pick it up and put it on your lap or um, uh, um, in, a, in a bag, I think uh, we could um, we should we should allow dogs on public transport. I'd love to be able to take my dog to the beach by bus. I'm interested that you're choosing dogs on public transport above like light rail. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's some some things some things are hard, you know. Um, uh, yeah, the. Um, yeah, these are my wishes. These are my wishes. Mm. You know, so. But you're you're generally then talking about a more humane, a kinder city. I get from those three things. Yes, I I, I look at it as being a more civilized civilized city. Um, I you know I think that uh, we need to create jobs and then people will come here. Um, but also, you know, new jobs for people who are already are kind of already here. And I think one of the things that will mark us out in the future there are, there are cities are growing rapidly there are going to be many more cities that Auckland needs to compete with and in, we, we will need to retain people here we're educating people um, we're skilling them and we're doing all sorts of um, uh, good things to, to improve humans and, and and life and we will need to retain those and the landscape will take us so far but we have a great opportunity to be able to have a city which truly is a world-class city with world-class design um, and and one that is different from everywhere else and I and I think that kind of level of civility um, is is something that, um, that that we should do and we and it can mark us out and that may be something as simple as allowing dogs on public transport um, uh, you know um, uh, plentiful public toilets um, clean streets um, all those all those kind of things they're all just small things that really make up to to Auckland being a really great place to live and to work Ben, thanks very much for joining me on The Good Citizen today. You're welcome. It's been great to chat to you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Next month, I'll be talking to Anahira Rawari, who's been leading Ngāti Whātua Orake's innovative housing developments here in Tāmaki, about what their experiments can teach us about ways we can solve the city's housing crisis. Thank you again to Britomart for their support of this podcast and for the good thinking every city needs. We'll speak to you again in a month. Butler here, podcast manager at the spin-off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our Mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at the spinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.